good morning. Welcome to First City Church. Thank you for being here today on Trunk or Treat. I think it's going to be fun. The kids are in the back. I'm already looking at outfits. I'm going to be about, you're going to be a ballerina? Yeah, she's going to be, she's getting all shy now. She's already got her shoes on. She's all excited. Tonight, parents, until after this afternoon, you're going to have a hard time getting them to take their nap. And after we give them all that candy, you're going to have a hard time getting them to bed. You're welcome. <laughs> so uh, it's a fun night. And listen, by the way, just come and be a part of it. Just be here. And it's so much fun. And in the afternoon, when the neighbors start to come and people stop and they see, and it's just amazing to me how every year somebody shows up, they get to know us, and they're like, man, you guys are a friendly group of people. And when does your services start? And every year somebody starts coming to church here just because of that event. And uh, so I'm, I'm really grateful for the event. And for those of you who are putting in a lot of work and a ton of time and setting everything up and cooking the hot dogs and, and all, the clean, all the stuff, thank you, thank you, thank you. In fact, we ought to just give you a hand. Thank you for all the work. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So um, there are a couple of things that I want us to pray about today. First of all, a lady named Angie who goes to church here, her mother, Judy Lowe, had open heart surgery. She, her mother does not live in our, in our city. Had open heart surgery, had some complications after that surgery. And, uh, and so she's asked if we would pray about that this morning. So I want to make sure that we do that. And, and I'm actually uh, feeling heavy in heart over this Pittsburgh massacre. This uh, man, Robert who Bowers, who walks into this Jewish synagogue and now 11 people have lost their life and several others more are wounded. And I just think it's devastating. I just think it's, it's so horrible. Why would some, you know, just to see somebody feel like they're God's answer to judgment on somebody who's living in a way or believing something that they do not feel is the way to live or believe. And to say all Jews must die and or at least allegedly and and things that was that he wrote I'm going in and and this is why what is it about us that wants to pronounce judgment what is it about us that just feels like we have the right to ostracize or eliminate today actually in Jonah chapter 3 we're going to talk about this whole attitude, this whole idea behind judgment. And whose right is it to judge? And why? And what what role do I play in that? So let's begin with a prayer, and then we'll jump into Jonah chapter 3. Lord God, we come before you right now with a desire to qualify For the title, Servant of Jesus Christ. One of the hardest things for us to do, Lord God, is submit our will to yours. We tend to want to act and judge. We want to reign supreme when we get our feelings hurt. We push our opinions on other people our judgments, we ostracize and we justify that it's okay. Oh Lord, inside me 
maybe inside all of us, defeat us of our pride. Help us to humble ourselves and walk humbly before you. Today, as we open up the book of Jonah, we seek to understand and then live up to who you are, the way you treat people, and the calling that you have in front of us. Bless us in this time of study, right now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. We've been trekking through this book. This is a fourth lesson. Tomorrow will be the last, uh, tomorrow. Next Sunday will be the last lesson in the book of Jonah. And uh, so thank you for studying the book with me. I find it interesting. I hope that you do too. And for me, it was remembering when I first started this book, hey, I, want, I wanted to treat it like a children's story. Jonah, Jonah, go down to Nineveh. Ooh. And Jonah said, no, I won't go. And he jumps on the boat and heads in the opposite direction. And the big fish, dun, 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 throw me overboard. And they do, and it's calm. And in the belly of the fish, she's like, I made the wrong decision. I'm so sorry. And the fish, and he spits him up on dry land. And Jonah goes and preaches, and they all live happily ever after. And so that's kind of the story of Jonah from a kid's point of view. But as I'm re-examining the whole book as an adult, I'm finding out that this whole book is about me. And what he has to say, it's not really a fish story. It's something much bigger than that. When the God of the universe calls me to participate... In something that he wants to do in our community. Do I say yes or do I say I'm too busy? And and when it comes to how he handles the, the flaws in my life. And then when he's teaching me how to view other people who live very differently than I do. What does that look like? So there's a guy named Thomas Carlyle who wrote a book of poems in the 70s. And this book of poems... He tried to capture the the heart, the spirit, the attitude, the sarcasm of Jonah. And and he actually does a pretty good job. Because Jonah, who is supposed to be the best man in all of the world. God's holy prophet, the spokesman for all of his people, is actually the worst character in the whole book. And he doesn't want to, no, I'm not going to go. And God, you shouldn't be so kind. And I'm not going to help you. And they're horrible people. And this whole attitude. So, so Thomas Carlock just captures all of that in this book of poems. I want to show you four of his poems and just show you the spirit behind it. And we're going to talk about some of it today. Here's the first one. It's called Let's Cool Down. This is from Jonah chapter 1. And it's Jonah doing the talking here in his poem. So Jonah says, I know a better way to circumvent your silly streak of mixing love With righteous judgment. Pause right there. We're going to land on that line this afternoon, especially at the end of my message today. This silly notion of of, do love and judgment, those two, do they go together or are they enemies of each other? All I need to do, says Jonah, is take the next flight west beyond your jurisdiction. Just get as far away from you as I can. And this will give you time for sober second thoughts to swear off this kick of simple-minded kindness. Can you hear that attitude? Just Jonah did not want God to be kind to the Ninevites, did he? Chapter 2, 
He wrote this inside the monster. I was as low as I could get when I remembered God. Ever been there? Odd that my distress impressed me with his apparent absence when his premise daily presence hadn't meant a blessed thing. I had God with me and didn't care. But now that I really need him, I'm surprised he's here. Finding myself in that hole with my soul fainting and rolling with the swell of my swollen ego was good enough to kill me good. Instead, I saw stars in the dark and started home on a welcome water spout. Chapter 3, look at the title of this. Counselor to the Almighty. Anybody want that job? So here he is, listen to Jonah, talking to God. Think twice before you pardon. Oh. Men repent even in ashes, but repent again of their repentance. It's like, yeah, I'm going to repent, never going to do that again, and then... I repent of my repentance. I just go right back to doing what I've done before. Anybody? Anybody? Repented and turned around and kept doing the same thing? Take the wiser bias of my advice. Confine your charity to such good neighbors as your humble servant. Well, okay, Jonah. Chapter 4, addiction. Look at this one. Consistently, Jonah chided his stupid and incredible creator for his addiction to mercy as though it were some miracle drug. A deity ought to be dependably capricious to keep his natives in line. How do we respond when people live in ways that we don't think they should live? What makes a person think that they're right to take a loaded gun into a synagogue and shoot people up because he disagrees with their belief system? Jonah really struggled with his attitude toward people who were different from him. And so as we look, the first two chapters of this book really talk about Jonah. How does a loving God deal with someone who's supposed to be one of the best people on earth? A prophet of God's, a spokesman to his people who makes a mistake and goes in the wrong direction, makes one poor decision. How should a loving God or a judging God deal with such a man? But starting in chapter 3, it's the same thing all over again, this time with people who are the most despicable and brutal people on the face of the earth. How should God deal with them? It's not the same as he would deal with me, right? So Timothy Keller, if you remember, I put this chart up several weeks ago. He says that chapter 3 and chapter 1 just fall parallel. We had Act 1, verses chapters 1 and 2 already. Now we're starting the second act of our play. 
where this time we're dealing with this brutal regime. And so as we go through it, I just wanted to remind you that you could take chapter 1 and chapter 3 and read them side by side, and they're going to go parallel. The first time with the prophet of God, the second time with this brutal people. And so I just want to see what the Word of God says as we... And so I want, I want to give you that picture. So here we go. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then the Word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to the message I give you. Well, what was the message that you gave? Well, chapter 1, verse 2. Let's parallel it. Here it is. Uh, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So Nineveh was living in a way that God did not like at all. Now, just so you can see on the map, here is Nineveh. It's right up above Assyria. And everything outlined in red is the whole uh, uh, the territory of the Assyrians. They had captured all of that territory, all of that land. If you remember, Babylon had taken children of Israel over into captivity. They were taken over by the Assyrians. And so it started to expand. It's a landmass, not quite the size of the United States, but soon to grow thereafter into more But I'm looking at this map and I'm thinking, man, there's Susa, right where the book of Esther is. Esther grew up with Artaxerxes, the king, as the capital of Susa at that time, right? And there's Ur, way down here at the bottom, where Abraham was born and lived before God called him over. And Mount Haran and Damascus and Jerusalem and Moab and Samaria, all these great cities where so many Bible stories are found in all these places, and I just... Love looking at maps like that and getting a visual of where all these stories took place. And so this Assyrian army was awful. At that time, now if you're in this town, people would study, you know, the, the, the military strategies of a conquering nation. And if you only look at the military strategies, you would think, man, these people were brilliant in the way that they just took over the known world. But they were so brutal. And if you were to go today to London and go into the British Museum, they dug up Nineveh and and pulled a lot of artifacts. And you can see today some of the artwork, some of the carvings, the stones, the walls that they put up to depict and to show all of the time, all of the land, all of the places where they marched, everything they took over, including this one. This is a picture that's on the walls. And in the description that, that I, I cut it out of the picture, but in the description, this is King Jehu, the king of Judah, God's leader for his people, bowing down at the feet of the king for Assyria. And they have it displayed. Oh, we've heard about your God. We heard that in times past, he did great and mighty things in Egypt. And over around where the Canaanites live. And by Kadesh Barnea. But your God is dead. And you're nothing. And here is King Jehu. Took all the things of gold out of the temple. And gave him his gifts to spare his life. That picture turns my stomach. It makes me think, what would it be like? For me to get up and act like I'm some kind of pastor or some kind of holy man or spiritual man when I go somewhere else and just compromise who I really am. And what I say I believe, I don't really believe. Now listen, there's a part of like that inside all of us that we constantly fight against, right? But that's just, that's, that's one of the pieces of artwork. So now if you go and you say, 
Okay, let me read more about Nineveh. I put it on the first part of your outline. Two books over, so after Jonah and Nahum, you look at Nahum, and this is what it says in the book of Nahum chapter 1 about Nineveh. The Lord is good, a refuge in time of trouble, and he cares for those who trust in him. But with, look at this visual, an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh, and he will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. And last week we talked a little bit about all this imagery of sea serpents and flooding and the whole story. And here it is again. He's now going to flood Nineveh and do something to them like what he was doing with Jonah. He continues talking about Nineveh chapter 3. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, the galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. These people were brutal. And as they conquered territory, they wanted everybody to know, you stand in our way and let me show you what's going to happen to you. And so you can go into this British Museum even today. I think I have a picture of it. And here it is. And over on the walls, this is the artwork, the stone, the carving out of the, the palace uh, where the king lived there in Nineveh. Now, what God said to him, and I don't have it on a slide, so you can just stay right where you are. But on, on your outline, chapter 3, verse 19, this is what God says. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? When God decided that he was going to do something to Nineveh, it's not because God's just a mean old God. It's because these people were horrible. They sacrificed their own children to their own gods for their own pleasure. These were not good people. And so you can go and you can see, and as you walk and as you saw all the stone and all the carvings, you would see all of their conquests and all of the nations that they took over. Here's another one with all of the fights. And they had people going into slavery. And they're just depicting the whole battle and what happens. I'm going to show you one more picture. As they would come in, they would show things like this. And I blew it up so you could see it. You can see over here, this is one of their many rituals of impaling people. They would take these tall poles and they would put these people alive. And they would run the pole up all the way through their body. And they would hang them up. So that as people were entering the city, they would see all these soldiers. In fact, when King Jehu was coming into the city, he saw the captain of his army and all these Israelites hanging on these poles, dead and dying as he walked in. And you remember the Romans would also do the same thing, dip them in wax and light them on fire to light the streets. Right? Brutal people. The top middle is a picture of just a beheading. This is, they just, this is just what they did. They collected the skulls. They got paid more money for the number of skulls that they collected in their conquest. The picture on the top right is people being de-skinned. They would lay them out and they would make their cut and then they would just, while they were alive, a bottom picture of just more of the same. Cruel, evil, brutal people. No wonder Jonah didn't want to go there. No wonder he didn't want to preach to these people. He didn't want them to repent. He wanted them to receive the judgment of God. That's not our question. Our question is, what is God going to do with a people like that? 
Is it the heart of God to grab a weapon and to go into their synagogue and start shooting them up? Chapter 3, verse 3. So Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. And he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Fact check on that. It would not take three days to go through the middle of that city if that's all you wanted to do. You just started at one point. You put on your tennis shoes. I'm going to go for a jog. You could go back and forth in that city seven, eight, nine, ten times. It was only seven miles around it. And so you could walk around the city twice in a day. The only reason that it would take you three days to walk through it is because you wanted to stop at all the shops and talk to all the people and go down every city, every street, I mean, every, every community. You know, but what they are saying is this is a huge city, 100,000 people, most powerful city at the time, and this time Jonah decided to go and obey. And what did God ask him to do? To preach this sermon of repentance. Right, so verse 4. Jonah began going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming. Here's his whole sermon. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That man's a good preacher. It didn't take him many words at all. He's going to get up. Today I'm going to preach you a sermon. And here it goes. You can clock me on how fast it goes. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I wish our preacher would be that short in his sermons. So we could get to lunch. Actually, in Hebrew, it's only five words. Forty days. Nineveh. Destroyed. Unbelievable. And in that message, you think, wait a minute. There's nothing about repentance in that sermon. There's nothing about who's going to destroy them. Why they're going to be destroyed. What's going to happen. When will it happen? We know, okay, 40 days. You're going into the most brutal, the strongest nation who occupied all of the known world at that time. And you're going to tell them, hey, man, in 40 days, this place is going to be leveled. And that's this whole sermon. And so when you begin to look at it, you think, okay, what is it about that sermon? And... and that made everybody want to change. And so there are two ways to look at the way that Jonah preached, what he said and everything that he did not say. The first is, well, it only took five Hebrew words to make the most brutal nation known to man from top to bottom repent and completely change who they were. Anybody think that's possible? Why, it took God... You know, moving heaven and hell and high water to get Jonah, the man of God, to repent. Surely it's going to take more than five words to get this most brutal Assyrian nation to change. The second way of looking at it is this. Jonah didn't want him to change. He didn't want to preach a big sermon. He didn't want to tell everybody how powerful God was and that God was really good. If they didn't repent, God was going to change them. He just entered the city, paid a dime, got an ice cream cone, and just walked through the city going, 40 more days, you guys are going to be gone. 40 more days, you guys are going to be gone. That's probably what happened. 
You know, we call it prophetic sabotage. He doesn't really in his heart want them to change and respond to the news of God. So he's just being a minimalist. Forty days you'll be destroyed. Forty days you'll be destroyed. Forty days you'll be destroyed. There, God, I did it. Now, let the fireworks begin. Is that what happened? Next verse. The Ninevites believed God. What? The most brutal nation in the history of the world? With a five-word Hebrew sermon? And they believed, who did they believe? It doesn't say they believed Jonah. It said they believed God. Did Jonah even mention God's name in the sermon? Did he say anything about God? Did he call them to repent? He didn't say anything about repentance. He didn't say anything about God. And yet the Ninevites believed God. And what is it that they believed? Did they believe that, oh, the way we've been living our lives is so horrible and so wrong. I need to stop and completely change. Did they believe who I am as a person is awful? And this word believe, this word believe in Hebrew is more than just I, 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 have, I intellectually think that he might be saying something true. It is, this word believe in Hebrew means I'm making a lifelong commitment to no longer be who I've been and do what I've done. They believed God and a fast was proclaimed. All of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with fasting and what does that mean? Fasting is this concept of I'm giving up something good for something better. I'll give up food that sustains me and only focus on God who I want to sustain me. And the taking off of good clothes and putting on sackcloth was, I'm no longer going to be sitting on the throne of my own life. I'm going to put on slave clothes and bow before a new master. God now is my master. I have no rights. I have... I have nothing outside of him. When the news reached the king, verse 6, what was his response? He rose from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the ashes, in the dust which was the lowest form. It was a symbol of the lowest place of submission a person could get to repent and change. The king. The king. And then he sends out this proclamation, verses 7 and 8. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his noble, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. He's like, everybody repent. Men, women, children, and Betsy the cow. And spot the dog. Everybody's repenting. Everybody's going to put on sackcloth and ashes. All the humans and all the animals. Animals, 
animals, we're going to call you, we're going to call the cows to repent of their evil and violent ways. And to put on, and they did. And they put sackcloth on the animals, and they didn't let them eat, and everybody had to repent. Now, you remember that this book is written poetically, and so you can see it's over the top in what they're asking. But everybody, tallest, shortest, oldest, youngest, most wealthy, the, the greatest, the least, everyone and their animals. Repent, change, turn, stop. Give up. This word give up, we use the word repent in the New Testament. It's the visual of I'm walking in this direction and all of a sudden I come to be convicted that it's not right. I stop, acknowledge that what I'm doing is wrong, turn around and go in the opposite direction. And so that's what the king declared and made this huge decree. Who knows, he said, verse 9, God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Okay. Here we are on the judgment of God. There's a judgment day coming. That's an old song. There's a judgment day coming. A sad day coming by and by. When the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left. Are you ready for that day to come? I'm an old man, man. That's way back in a small A-frame church in Quitman, Georgia. I still remember the words. It scared me to death. There's a judgment day coming. There's a God and he's fiercely angry with you. And he's going to walk into your place and pull out his gun and end your life. Because you deserve it. Is that your visual of God? That's what the king was saying. You need to change because this God is angry and he's out to get you, my pretty. Right? That's the visual. Is that your image of God? When you look at the judgment of God and you ask, what is he like? And how does a person like me respond to that? It's a big question. Shock of all surprises, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. You deserve it, but I don't want to give it to you. I'd rather you repent. And you're forgiven. Is that your image of how God treats you and your sin? Can I preach at you? At you. Can, can I preach just for a second? I, since I've been here in this church, the, it, it doesn't feel good, but it has happened. Where someone will walk up and say, hey, how long are you going to let those people come to church here? I'm just telling you, that's awful. And this was my answer. Oh, you may be right, 
So we should decide when should we kick somebody out of our church, us spiritual people and all. Tell you what, I'll let you decide. I'll let you decide. You tell me when you're ready for God to stop forgiving you of your sin, and I'll tell them that's when we're going to ask God to stop forgiving them of theirs. Where do you want to draw the line? You go ahead, you draw the line. Where do you want to draw the line? How many of you are already ready for God to never forgive your sin again? Raise your hand. Nobody? You mean you still want God to keep forgiving you? What if you're still doing the same sin? Well, it's habitual. Okay. Which of your sins is not? So, this is what I want us to look at, and then I'm going to end my message. Judgment. It's a harsh word. A lot of people feel justified in pronouncing judgment on people who live differently than they do. This is an attribute of God. Do we like it or do we not like it? Are we glad it exists or are we not glad that it exists? And as we begin to talk about judgment and how we feel about judgment and the judgment of God and His justice, how do we balance that with this other word? And do I believe that justice, judgment, and love go together? Or are they opposites? Well, either you love me or you're going to judge me. Either I'm accepted or I'm kicked out. Is judgment really the opposite of love? Yes or no? Or isn't it apathy? Apathy, not acting. Listen, you're walking around your neighborhood, you're going for a walk in the early afternoon, school is letting out, and a second grader is coming by and he has his backpack on, and he's got his lunch pail, and he's excited, he's got some artwork, he's going to take it home to his parents, and he rounds the corner, and there are four sixth graders standing there, and they're waiting, and he gets into the middle, and they start picking on him, and they start slapping him on the top of his head, and they take his backpack off, and they open it up, and they throw all of his papers everywhere, and they rip apart the homework that he wanted his mom to put on the refrigerator. And they take his lunch pail and they eat anything that's left in it. And he falls to the ground, he's crying, and they start kicking him. And you're walking by, what are you going to do? Are you going to say, oh, kids will be kids. I guess they'll work it out later and keep walking? Is that what you're going to do? Come on. No. Is the loving thing sometimes to act with judgment and say that's not right and you're not going to do that? Yes or no? These are not opposites, love and judgment. The real question comes is who should offer the judgment? Who should give the judgment? Should it be me? Should it be you? Or should it be God? So if love and judgment go together, and and I think I don't even want to live in a world where there's not justice, accountability for wrongdoing. We can't live in a world like that. It's a matter of who should be the judge. Should it be me? So it doesn't happen a whole lot in this town unless it's after a Wahoos game or something like that. But have you ever been in a turning lane where 
the, the green light, the arrow comes on, and it only stays lit for three seconds, and two cars can go through, and then all of a sudden it turns yellow, and you're the next car in line? What do you do? <laughs> it's not red. It's not even orange yet. And so I'm just like, I'm getting right behind, you know, and, and the car right behind them, what do they do? Get as close to their bumper as they can. And then they're looking around like, well, I'm already in the middle of the intersection. I'm out. I got to go all the way on through. And the car behind them, they're going to go faster. They can't get behind them because they're too far back. So they go swing a little wider and we'll all go through together. Now, if you're the first car in line on the other side of the red light and the light now turns green, what do you do? Oh, praise the Lord, Scott Harrington. You probably do. The rest of us don't, do we? No, we give it some gas and we get right up to them and stop. And then we're like waving like, ah. well, we're probably not waving like that. But we're, how dare you stop me from going through my green light, you yellow, red, orange drivers. When we're going through the light and it's us in the intersection, don't we want a little grace? Well, they're probably in a hurry. They're on their way to their son's recital and we ought to give them some grace. God bless you. Right? That's what we want when we're the one running the light. When we're the one sitting at the light, having to wait on somebody else's poor decision and it's keeping us from our agenda. Do we not fume a little bit? You know why we don't need to be the judge? Because we're awful at it. We're two-faced. We want grace to ourselves and too much judgment to somebody else. So here's your little pop quiz. If there is no God of judgment, then there is no hope for the world. True or false? If God is apathetic, if he doesn't really care to judge the world... You can live however you want to live, and there's no accountability. Is there any hope for the world? Or will not everybody be carrying around their own weapons and shooting up whoever they want, synagogue or not? If there's no God of judgment, there's no hope for the world. But is the reverse true? If there is a God of judgment, then what? Well, if there is a God of judgment... There's no hope for me. There's still no hope for the world. Because my righteousness is as filthy rags. I don't deserve heaven. Anyone? So we can't just look at the, at the love and the judgment of God. Because what we all need is grace. I had no idea when I started reading the book of Jonah that it was chapter 3, verse 6 that was the most important verse in the whole book. Because a loving God who brings judgment on the world and has the right to condemn but doesn't, He does everything He can to usher in grace and to bring us to his loving home. 
was never demonstrated in a greater way than at the foot of the cross. And chapter 3 of the book of Jonah, verse 6 in your Bible, is a verse about Jesus Christ. Because while we were sinners, enemies of the gospel, there was one in heaven who stood up off of his throne and took off his royal robe and took on the form of a servant and humbled himself and came to live as a man and immersed himself in the filth of my life so that I could sit in heavenly places with his father. And that's the story of Jonah. At the time when you want to pick up your voice of authority and judgment and hail it over everybody is the moment in which God says, I love you. And I want to call you to a different way to live. And I invite you into the grace of a loving embrace with God. How does God treat the most evil people on the world? If you're going to serve communion, if you'll go ahead and go to the back, there's nothing else that I need to communicate in this sermon. This is now about telling God thank you. We're going to go into this time of communion and this is the time where you repent and pray. This is the time where you decide, what am I going to do? What is going to be my response to the grace of God? Will I humble myself, take off my clothes of authority and put on being a servant to Jesus Christ and all the days of my life give up the direction I was going and turn around and live for him as we eat and drink this simple communion meal it's your way today to say I no longer want to live to myself I want to live for the King of Kings who loved me and died for me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, out of the book of Jonah, you call us home. Out of the book of Jonah, you offer us grace. Through the blood and sacrifice of a man who was impaled on a tree so that we could be set free, we say thank you, Jesus. And in your honor today, we eat and we drink and we say thank you. Amen.